Welcome back to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Barry Cohen is a veteran award-winning producer, director, writer, and cultural disability and health social activist. Her latest film, Unloved, Huronia's Forgotten Children, premiered at Hot Docs in 2022. The Huronia Regional Centre in Ontario was sold to families as a safe home for children with disabilities. But in reality, it was a site of appalling abuse and neglect. Barry brilliantly exposes how the government did their best to weed out the sick, infirm, and undesirable people by sending them to Huronia. Two of those people were her brothers, Alfred and Lewis. Please welcome the brilliant Barry Cohen. So I am so excited to introduce the world who may not know her yet, but they're about to know her, to Barry Cohen. Now, Barry Cohen is a veteran award-winning producer, director, writer, mentor, and cultural disability and health social justice activist. You've won tons and tons and tons of awards, and you've done lots and lots of films. The one I really want to talk to you about today, though, Barry, is called Unloved, Huronia's Forgotten Children. Welcome, Barry. Welcome to Breaking Brave. Thank you very much. It's, it's a real pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I was younger, a lot younger. My family used to take trips when it was a nice day because we lived in Toronto. So Toronto, Ontario, Canada it was a nice day. We, we weren't close to any beach or water. So my parents used to take us to Mara or Mara, M-A-R-A beach, which is up around Lake Simcoe, Lake Kuchiching. And occasionally the traffic coming home after spending a day in the water and having a picnic lunch, et cetera, would be kind of uh, busy. And so my dad would take an alternate route. And that alternate route took us by the Huronia Regional Center, as it was called then. I'm thinking it's now mid-70s, perhaps, when this was going on for me in my life. And after watching your film several times, Unloved, Huronia's Forgotten Children, I feel so guilty because from the back seat of the car, I would be looking out the window and we would drive by this place and there would be all these people behind a gate with their hands kind of sticking out of the gate bars, if you will, waving at the cars. And you could tell that, you know, there was mental health issues going on there. But after I watched your film several times, I felt so ripped up and guilty about as an unknowing kid looking at these people in like I was at a zoo. So with that said, this has a real personal meaning for me, but let's talk about what, what, where, where did all this come from for you? It has a hugely personal meaning for you, Barry. Well, thanks for your question. First, I want to just tell you, you shouldn't feel guilty because a, you didn't know like the rest of the country or the province didn't know of Ontario and, and B like all of us, even to this day, we're conditioned to see people who are different than so-called the norm or the average or whatever the norm is these days um, as other. And when we see people as other or so different, we do tend to go, ooh, you know, that's them, not me. They are, are so different that they, it is as though the other is in a zoo. So, and, and for children especially, what else were you led to think? And so don't feel guilty. Is, is is that message. Thank you for that. Because after I learned what was going on on the other side of that gate where these people were living and housed, oh, um, because we have a global audience and anybody who is living or has lived in Ontario certainly understands where this town of Aurelia is and perhaps understands or is about to when they watch your film, what the Huronia Regional Center was all about. But Barry, can you contextualize this just for people, just so that they will understand in a broader sense of exactly what are we talking about? What is your film about? So that they can understand how this all fits together. 
Well, my film is 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 sort of um, a, a microcosm of a larger trend in Western culture, essentially, where and I can't speak for Eastern and other cultures that you know how did they manage children who were who were born with um, disabilities, is cognitive developmental delays or intellectual disabilities. That would be another film, another series of films, actually. It would be really cool to see. But the film basically is a microcosm of what was very prevalent in the Western world pretty much throughout the 20th century after the growth of capitalism, which was the institutionalization of um, children and youth labeled or living with intellectual disabilities and how their management, how the care was so colossally, catastrophically a failure. They were unloved. They were emotionally, psychologically, physically, and sexually abused and assaulted as a, as a form of a routine of the institution. And so the journey for me started in two ways, I guess. The first journey, I suppose, and it, and it, also, like you, had my own notions as when I was a child when in the 70s when I first heard that I had two half-brothers from my dad's first marriage, who um, and I didn't even know the full story then. I only knew that, oh, one of them, and his name was Alfred, who was born long before me, had lived and died there. And I only learned about it around the time of his death in 1973. He had already lived there almost 20 years and he died of epilepsy, uh, an epileptic seizure, apparently. And that was the first time I knew that my dad, I knew my dad had, because she was in our life, uh, a daughter, Adele, who's in the film. And she was my half-sister, uh, although she always hated that word. And I do too. Um, but I didn't know about these other brothers. And so that journey, and I asked my dad a bunch of questions at the time, to the extent that my 12-year-old mind could come up with anything. And he just said, yeah, it was this place in Aurelia that took care of, and, I'll, and the R word in those days was the terrible demeaning word of retardation. He said he was so severely compromised, basically. And there was this hospital for children who were like him. He couldn't really speak. And uh, I would go up and visit and he didn't even recognize me. And the nurses would say, oh, don't bother coming. And I would bring toys and I would drop them off. But he also told me that I had another brother who was the youngest brother of that family, and his name was Lewis. And he just said, oh, he was so badly compromised that he was born with so many deficiencies, poor thing, he died at home. And I never asked, oh, where is he buried? I never asked anything. So flash forward many, many years. In 2013, Adele, my sister, my half-sister, my sister from that marriage, called me one day and she said, oh, are we, are we getting any money? And I said, for what? And she said, oh, there's this big class action lawsuit for all the kids who lived and suffered and died at Huronia Regional Center in Aurelia. That's where Alfie was. And even she didn't know whether Lewis was there or not. And I said, oh, my gosh, uh, probably not, but I'll look into it. And I immediately went down this rabbit hole. I started researching it. I went on the website of the lawyers who were handling the class action on behalf of the survivors. And I discovered some very, very difficult, awful things. Um, I, I read the statement of claim. There was a settlement out of court at the 11th hour. And I just thought, wow, I had no idea. I'm sure my dad had no idea how awful this place was, how badly it treated the children how it broke the law in many ways with claim, you know, with, with allegations of criminal behavior, sexual assault, and so on. And I'm sure nobody in Ontario knows, very few, unless they were reading the Toronto Star, which was really the only publication that was trying to follow the case. And so I thought this has to be a film. I really want to investigate this and figure out what happened to my, well, and ultimately the question was what happened to my half-brother, so I never knew. And this set about the journey, and I got to meet survivors, and, and because their testimony is the testimony of understanding how children really lived and suffered and survived or died at that place. 
So that was the beginning of it for me. And that started, the actual beginning, research beginning was in December 2013. And then I didn't actively start to figure out, oh, I, I really have to make this film until early into 2014 and then started the journey of meeting survivors and so on. And the rest is pretty much documented in the film, like my journey into this whole area with my family. It is. And it wasn't just because I happen to live in Ontario and I happen to have this history of, yes, driving by this place as a kid with my family. It is an incredible film. So somebody from another part of the world should absolutely, could absolutely watch this and understand it. I'm struck by a number of things. First of all, I'm going to interject here. This place was around, well, let's talk about it, it as the Huronia Regional Center was its last name. It was around for 133 years. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Barry, at any point. It was the oldest of its kind in Canada, but it wasn't an exclusive reality in Canada. These kinds of places existed in Europe as well as in the United States. It started as the Aurelia Lunatic Asylum for Chronic Patients. Then it became the Aurelia Asylum for Idiots, then the Hospital for the Feeble-Minded, and then it was called the Ontario Hospital School, and then finally they landed at the Huronia Regional Center. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it originally was, I think in the 1880s, early 18, excuse me, in the 1860s, I think it was a hotel. Oh, really? And then it got appropriated by the government in, in 1876 um, as that first asylum, which was also always a work farm. It always put people to work, um, working as indentured labor, because um, the grounds, the actual grounds of the place are, are beautiful. And there was, and you could imagine, like, the, the whole area was, you know, this lush farmland so it was considered a, a good thing to train and, and make people, even, you know, children growing in place as young, young adults or teenagers to, to learn how to farm and, and all of that. So it was, it was always a bit of a work farm. Um, so after that first asylum, then it became this place for, quote unquote, idiots and the feeble minded and the whole move towards activity. And, and farming and labor happened at around, in, fo in full force around the turn of the century. And originally that was considered a really a novel thing, a, a, a progressive thing. And as time went on, that, that continued, but you began to see the growth of eugenics, separating people off into productive citizens, you know, with the growth of capitalism and the need for productive labor, which is with us now. I mean, when we look at how, not to digress too much, but when, when we look at our relationship with elders and seniors and what we do, what do we do? We call them homes, nursing homes, but they're institutions. And yes, they need various levels of care from moderate to complex care, but there's a way in which, because of the lack of the perception that, well, they're no longer productive citizens, so therefore they're not meaningful in anybody's life, so we're going to give them sort of the basics. And we saw certainly from the pandemic what a colossal, catastrophic humanitarian crisis that was. But the pandemic didn't create that. The pandemic revealed it. Absolutely. And in my work over the last 20 years, you know, my very first TV series was about women balancing aging parents with their careers and, and younger families. And many often, often we followed women on the journey of, of what were they going to do with their elders, you know, and, and how were they coming to various decisions. So I journeyed into various nursing homes at that time. This was more than 20 years ago. So coming back to the sort of history of, of the place, um, eugenics was a, was a key principle that sent a lot of people there. And not just eugenics in terms of who's fit in society, but also if you were really poor, you were mm -hmm. more likely to end up there if your family was struggling in one way or another. Children's Aid, early versions in the, century, in, in the 20th century, 
Children's Aid Societies in Ontario, anyway, would get involved. And uh, sometimes with not a lot of assessment, medical assessment would send kids up there, um, separate them from their families and, and, and send them up there. And there's a few stories in the film of, of uh, survivors who got sent there because Children's Aid got involved. Yeah. That was shocking to me. When I delved into your film slash as much as I could research regarding the Hironia Regional Center, moms, dads, they were having lots of kids. And sometimes if they weren't economically able to look after those children, they got dumped there. I mean, dumped. Or the Children's Aid Society in its form that it took then was having difficulty finding a foster home for children. And so they got dumped there. So this was not a feeble-minded or, or any kind of mental challenged just situation. It was anybody who they couldn't deal with them. They couldn't deal with them for whatever reason that was. It's true. And I think if you were from a middle class or upper class family, you weren't protected necessarily, but but there, the chances would be, I think, a bit less. Just from the stories that I heard, the chances would be less likely, unless there was like profound disability, that there would be pressure by the medical establishment to send your kid away to this place or another place. And uh, rare were the stories that I heard. And there is, a, there is one in, in the film where the parents from the 1950s or 60s were, just, were determined to keep the family together and support the child in the home, mm -hmm. in the community. Mm -hmm. And remember, mm -hmm. this was at a time when there were no community supports to do that. There was no funding. Even now, it's a struggle to get funding. If you have an autistic child, for example, um, it, there's a huge wait list to get support. Um, but in those days, there was no community schools. There was no notion of including kids in the classroom with differing abilities the way there is now. There still is segregation, but it's, it's less than it would have been, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And there was, under the big umbrella of eugenics, I think, there was social shame involved in having this kind of a child, this child that was different than the other kids. Mm -hmm. So they got rid of them. I'm I'm gonna I may get this um survivor's name wrong, so please correct me if I'm not saying his last name correctly. Brian Logi. Logi. Okay. So Brian Logi said, and I quote from your film, my parents didn't want me. They dropped me off and the administrator said, You can cry all you want today, but tomorrow you belong to me. Right. I just, it runs through me like ice that a little kid who in this particular case, you know, I don't know what his backstory was, but his impression was his parents didn't want him, was sitting there being dumped, no suitcase, no clothing, no anything, just left. Like these kids don't have feelings. Yeah. I mean, all of them have got to be suffering complex PTSD beyond all kinds of other things that they must be having to deal with now. Well, I think you, you hit on one of the key themes of the film for me, which is, and it applies to all forms of dehumanization. I think in this particular, you know, with this story, with, you know, intellectually disabled children or children labeled as such, as soon as that happens there was an implicit assumption that, yes, they don't feel the same way. They don't care about family connection the same way. Like that kind of dehumanization comes with it a whole bunch of BS, if you excuse the expression, assumptions around thought, feeling, and connection and attachment that once you buy into that, it becomes so much easier to say what that prince, what that administrator said, as you pointed out. It's as though he didn't have feelings because I think they wanted to believe that the, that these children in their so-called care did not have feelings, and could just be, you know, frog marched through their lives in this place behind those gates. 
And indeed, many of the so-called counselors who they hired, especially after the war, themselves may have had PTSD because they were military veterans in many cases. I didn't get a chance to talk about that in the film. I wish I had. Although some people would think it's a bit of a red herring because it doesn't excuse the larger administrative failures that continued even through the 70s and 80s and so on. But I think that Brian did actually say to me, you know, once I think in in our interview, I said, you know, tell me about some of these so-called counselors on the boys' wards anyway. And he said a lot of them were military guys and they weren't trained and weren't properly trained. Nobody was real, unless it was a nurse or, or a doctor on secondment to the facility for, you know, health reasons. There, a lot of them were, were just like really badly trained, not trained on how to cope with the challenges of that population, not trained on self-care. God, what did that mean? Um, not trained on, on the fact that these are children separated from families, needing love. That's why I called it unloved. It's not that they were unlovable. It's that they were treated that way and therefore unloved. And so that's what dehumanization does. We've learned about that from residential schools. We learned about that from, you know, long-term care, any kind of, any, any time a person is placed in an environment, not of their choosing, where they're kind of in an industrial model of some kind, or, you know, separated from family and, you know, the intimate parts of their lives are controlled by others, you're going to get a recipe for for a lot of dehumanization and harm. And we see that, you know, when you look in the UK, when you look at other nations, perhaps not as much Nordic nations. We do know that eugenics wasn't born in Germany. I mean, Germany made the most disastrous use of it under Hitler, but it was very much a North American thing as well, and very much a Canadian thing as well. I don't know about Australia and New Zealand. Um, I suspect it was very common. Um, It was part of this Western world notion of there's a hierarchy of human potential and those at the top end um, will reap all the benefits and everybody else, you know, is not worthy of (laughs) being accorded the full rights of humanity. And you see that uh, in institutions. And there were institutions in across North America, Um, every state has a Huronia. You know, In um, when I looked through stock footage, old archival footage, I saw footage from Italy. I saw footage from the Eastern Bloc. I saw footage from England. Um, every country had their Huronias. And in the film, I think you, you actually termed it sadism. Yeah. Because the recipe I'm reading off my wall it it's bred in these quote unquote institutions that are there for reform punishment they're isolated and they're there to sort of weed out the sick and the infirm and the undesirable people so it's a, it's a bed of this ripe for these kinds of actions there were you know 32 boys men sleeping in a ward they would change beds at night so that when the guards or whoever they were called came into the ward to rape them, they couldn't find the one they were looking for because they changed, they changed beds. Yeah. Brian did say that. Yeah. They also didn't protect them by the way, from, from the, the predations of older residents either. There was a lot of sexual violence that happened between residents as well, which wasn't well managed at all. Well, and and also in your film, I learned that the administrators would ask older kids to beat up the younger kids to get them to do something so that that violence was taught. It was encouraged. It was asked for. So, of course. It was like sport. Yeah. In Canada in the last few years, we've had an awful lot of unmarked graves that have been discovered in, within, or around the residential schools. And in fact, I did interview a chief who was a survivor of St. Anne's Residential School. And God bless him, the stories he told were actually, unfortunately, extremely similar to the ones that were being told by your survivors in your film. 
But if I'm correct in saying this, Barry, there are 2,000 bodies buried in a mass grave. That's a guess. Yeah. Okay. Guess. And that out of the settlement money that came from the class action suit, some of the survivors chose to create a community called Remember Every Name, where they then went on to try to, in their own best possible way, fix this horrific history that happened with the bodies in this unmarked grave area beside the Huronia Regional Center. Maybe you could speak to that for a minute, because I've got tons of notes, but I'd love to hear it from you directly. Well, I think you've hit on on an important connection, which which is a connection I make also in the film, is that, uh, although not about residential school cemeteries, because when I was finishing the film, that's when the revelations came to light. Although I have to say, A, it was not at all a surprise to me because of what we were talking about earlier. When you dehumanize people in life, hello, you're going to dehumanize them in death. Yeah, And there's unmarked graves around old psychiatric institutions. There's unmarked graves, of course, uh, unfortunately, with residential school property. And there's unmarked graves at institutions probably in in North America. And in, in fact, I did read a case of a boys training school. I think it was in Tallahassee, Florida, that was the subject of a huge investigation and lawsuit. And sure enough, there were unmarked graves there. So I think wherever you have institutions, you know, with this kind of legacy, you're going to get of of dehumanization, you're going to get this. And the cemetery, Huronia, is really complicated because there are some plots there. There are some markers there. And then there's only markers that that are numbered. And then there's no markers. And then there's markers that have a name and a death date only, but not a birth date because they don't want you to know how young they were. So it's a really complicated space, this this greenery, this space. And then there's, for all we know, they were buried in a mass fashion. There has not been ground-penetrating radar there to reveal that. I don't think they had the funds to do that. And certainly the government has doesn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. They did it only insofar as they could determine whether there was a sewer pipe that ran through it and may have disturbed burial ground. So what you see is is with each era of an administrator at the whim or at the pleasure of the administrator, they decided whether it was going to be, oh, we'll put a stone here. Oh, no, we'll just put a number here. Oh, we'll put a stone, but then we're going to remove the stones and create walkways out of them on the other side of the property. Like nobody cares. Nobody. It doesn't matter. Um, so it was just like each, you could almost read each era of this place through how they treated the dead, or shall I say mistreated the dead. Yeah. So what Remember Every Name did, this group of survivors with some of their supporters, is they used whatever little money was left over from the class action to at least properly memorialize the dead and their experience of having lived there in a way that they could control. because. After the class action was settled, the government said, trust us, we will make right. We'll put markers up, we'll memorialize it properly. And not only did they get it wrong, but they never consulted anybody. They didn't involve survivors and their supporters who actually had the proper data to say, you know, no, this is how it should go. They didn't want to involve survivors. So it was another form of dismissal and disrespect, Mm -hmm. even as the government tried to make, the Ontario government tried to make right after the settlement and, and said, we know this is terrible, we'll do the right thing. They didn't do the right thing. And in the process, they dismissed survivors who could have helped them do the right thing. So the survivors went, screw you, we're going to do our own thing. And they put together, and I document this in this in the film, a beautiful monument. They hired a, um, they went looking and they interviewed a bunch of sculptors and they came up with a proposal and the, and the work that they wanted to move forward with. Hilary Clark Cole, who's a renowned sculptor, artist, and they wanted to have words put on the stone. It's this beautiful obelisk with, you know, crows 
steel crows placed on the monument. And um, they got to do it the way they wanted to do it. And they invited government people to come. And some of them did. (laughs) It was a new government. Um, So they were like, hey, we don't have to own the bad stuff. We'll just celebrate the new stuff, which they did. Um, And it was very meaningful to them. And now it's become this gathering place every Mother's Day. And so this this Mother's Day, we're all going up there to um, look at the new flowers that they've planted. And there's been... Brian's family, Brian Logie's family, one of the survivors, has put some money together to pay for a beautiful bench. Um, I think a few benches to be up there with more words put into the benches so you can come and sit there and contemplate, you know, the place and the, and the, and the, the story and and at least feel that there's some redemption in taking control of, of such a place. And thinking about the place is not a scary place in terms of the cemetery, but as a way of remembering, literally remembering that you haven't been forgotten, that you, you, we know you lived and died here, and we're here for you always. The monument is stunning. Yeah, it is. And one of the survivors, and you will likely remember her name, and I'm so sorry, other than Brian's name up on my wall, I didn't, I didn't write down her name, she said, the crows were always there for us, looking out over us, watching over us. Yeah, Betty Bond and Bev Link both said that. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Betty and Bev. And I, it was haunting to me because I could feel it in my core of these little kids, you know, looking out windows if they could even see out windows and watching the big crows flying around this kind of farm-like property Mm-hmm. And now those crows are depicted on the memorial and absolutely beautifully. Mm-hmm. I was so moved by the fact that they did this. And I was so angry by the fact that the government, even after you know Kathleen Wynne's apology in t- 2013, and some of the survivors were were there in legislature when that happened, but they did it all wrong when I saw what they did. So I was, I was, I was thrilled by the strength and the community of Remember Every Name. So in the creation of this film, in the research, in the discussions with all of the survivors, in understanding the events that took place behind those gates, did it or how did it change your perspective on what bravery is? linking back to the reason we are here today? Mm. That's a great question. What is bravery in this context? I think it is a kind of innate resilience Mm. to know who you are and to be firm in that and to know that no matter what any, and it's such a difficult thing because it's so hard to predict and it is still so mysterious But bravery is to be firm, I think, and know who you are and know that whatever they say and do, whomever they are about you, you're not going to be limited by that and that they're probably wrong. And so, you know, that story in the film when Marie says, you know, I made this sweater because Marie's very talented. And when she tells a story when she was 12 that she made this sweater and and her teacher at the institution didn't believe that she could do that. She could make this beautiful sweater at the age of 12 and being, quote unquote, intellectually disabled. So she unraveled the sweater. And it didn't stop Marie from continuing to be a fantastic knitter and a fantastic seamstress, um, an artist. And, you know, I think she wanted she wanted to fight back. But she didn't forget that story and she didn't forget who she, who she was becoming and who she was. And that, that is, that's brave. I mean, I've seen Marie Slark. So Marie Slark, who I'm talking about, is one of the class action litigants who led the class action. And there is, I call Marie a soldier sometimes. You know, I talk to her all the time. And... Um, 
she lives near me, so I, I often visit her and bring things to her and stuff like that. She's got the patience of a saint, and I'll say, man, oh man, you're a soldier. And she's like, well, what choice do I have? And that, to me, is a certain bravery as well, because she knows who she is. There's a stubbornness there, too. She's actually served her very well, and there's a bravery. And Patricia Seth, who was is her best friend and who led the class action with Marie, she's the same way. She's very determined. She knows who she is. And there's a, there's a bravery in, in that resilience, or shall I say the resilience to me speaks to a bravery that she's going to get back up again, no matter what anyone says or does to her or about her. And it's not easy. There's no shortage of frustrations and tears but there's also no sh- shortage in getting back up again. And I got to tell you too, I think it was brave to participate in the film and talk about their stories in the way that they did. Now, having said that, I, I, I got really lucky in this regard. By the time I sat down with the survivors to get their stories and their testimonies, I had already heard a lot of those stories because they had been on speaking engagements. Yeah, so Kate Rossiter, Professor Kate Rossiter, who's in the film, teaches mm-hmm. at Laurier, wrote, co-wrote a book called Punishing Conditions about Huronia. She got funding to support survivors to put together um, a cabaret of their stories to support them and to determine their willingness and their readiness um, and worked with you know, a lot of the PTSD and stuff like that in order to see, you know, in order to get them on the road. So talking to schools, universities, libraries, medical schools, law faculties, also with Marilyn Dolmage, who's in the film, who's a key person in the film, who was one of the class action uh, litigation guardians and a former uh, staff member at Huronia, whose brother also suffered and was at Hironi at the same time that my brothers were. So Marilyn would, would go on the road as well and travel with some of the survivors to tell to, to tell stories. So there was a lot of speaking. They were speaking. They were speaking to crowds. They were already... So by the time I sat down with them, they had already kind of exposed themselves, if you will, had already mm-hmm. demonstrated that bravery. There had been there was a CBC radios um, documentary that had been done. There were a lot of reports in in the Toronto Stars. I say there was just a lot of engagement and a lot of educational outreach. And so by the time I sat down with them, they were already kind of seasoned. It's still nerve wracking, and it's still you know we got to get to certain places and you have to be careful in that kind of environment as as a filmmaker it's complicated you know there's a lot of emotions to manage including your own and your crew and and most importantly the person telling the story but they were already well grounded in their bravery with that story i would guess i would venture to say they were very happy to participate nonetheless you know it's one thing to talk to a room of 20 25 students or people it's another thing to have a clip of your story go viral. Like we had a clip of Pat talking about the day she got dropped off and CBC, because it's on CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has their online platform and it's called Gem mm-hmm. and it's there right now. It's, it's, it's being streamed for free. And when they did the promotion and they had a clip of Pat's intake story, it went viral. It got over 7 million views. You can't, I couldn't predict that. So I said to Pat, like, people might come up to you on the street. Are you okay with that? And she said, yeah, I w- but I want them to be my friends. Let's, let's at this point, let people know in the world, because I'm sure they're all wanting to know, how can they see this film? How can they watch it, become involved, just... How can people reach you? How can people watch the film? How can they consume this beautiful piece of work that you've done? Well, um, we do have a distributor right now who's trying to place it in various streaming platforms in the world. In Canada, it is on CBC Gem. So you just 
go to CBC Gem. There is, if people just Google unloved, erroneous, forgotten children doc, various links will come up that can tell you more about the film. RememberEveryName.ca, I believe, is the website for the survivor group. And it's a terrific website. It's got updated information and more background history on the place, other kinds of stories that I didn't get a chance to tell. And it's really a, a terrific website, and it'll have the information on the local Mother's Day event at, at Aurelia. So we're all, and it's May 14th. So, so those are kind of the main, the main ports, if you will, at the moment. And then, you know, it has done its festival circuit. So it was at a few festivals in Europe. It's already done, uh, you know, it was at the Hot Dogs International F- Film Festival here in Toronto. Um, it was at a festival in, I know, in the UK and in New York and in LA and Windsor. I mean, a whole bunch. Um, I'm still doing some outreach now, but it's more, it's, it's, there's a few very large activist groups in Canada that have been screening the film uh, in their various chapters throughout the country and having discussions around it, like Inclusion Canada and um, People First of Canada. Oh, there's one other thing, which is, it's a bit more of an academic thing, but it's really detailed and very interesting. It's called Recounting Huronia, and it's a website put together by Kate Rossiter, who's in the film, Professor Kate Rossiter. And it's a really detailed, deep historical dive into the institution, its artifacts, some patient files. I've donated my brother's patient files there. And there's more details about some of the participants there too. So that's Thank a you. fantastic website. Thank you. I'm going there. Definitely. What are you working on now? Is there something that you're focused on as a next, Barry, next film? Well, I have um, several things that I'm thinking about. I'm just at the thinking stage, and one of which requires a very big, deep breath, and I don't know if I can do it because there's a lot of ethical issues involved. But the next thing for me that I've been intrigued by is medical assistance in dying. And the part of it that potentially, in Canada anyway, opens it up to people who are not at the end of their life. Mm -hmm. And I find that really challenging and problematic. And I'm curious about that. I know that people living with disability disabilities are very worried about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and worried about it as an option to deal with the failure of the state to offer the right social supports. Instead of doing that, it's like, well, you can either live in long-term care or apply for medical assistance and dying, which is an outrageous choice. And so I'm curious about those stories. How is disability, because it's really changed, the experience of making this film has really changed my entire thinking about my own ableism and my own my own prejudices and it's made me think about this whole other world of where do we support and where do we let people down who are living with disabilities because we're all going to get there if we live long enough guess what <laughs> our yeah. our reward is to be disabled <laughs> if we live yeah. long enough we're going to be disabled we're going to be living with disabilities you know a bad knee that's going to require accommodation or or worse likely you know we're going to have trouble climbing a stair we're going to have you know we're going we're going to be confronting it something marie once said to me marie slark once said to me she said in many ways we are what you will become yeah yeah you're looking at your future you're looking at your future. So, yeah. and that's a good scenario. That's the reward for living long. Yes. Few of us get out of here alive, uh, <laughs> unscathed. So I, I'm curious about that. And I'm curious. So I, I don't know if that's a film. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Fabulous. So there's that. Um, and, um, and then there's the flip side of my family story. Cause you know, I do tell the story of my family in part in unloved, but the flip side of the family story is, something I've been thinking about as a a drama. So I've been writing dramatic scripts around that um, for a potential series. Wow. 
Yeah, because the family story is a... And is that something you can talk to me about, or are we just going to leave that right now kind of locked up? I'll tell you that, you know, my dad was, you know, my dad had various professions, but one of the professions that he had was that he was a bookie. He took gambling debts. Uh In the UK, it's a turf accountant, right? And I think it's legal. But now the province of Ontario is the main bookie. They've legalized gambling for the province. But I grew up when it was illegal. And so we led a very interesting life because of that. It's not like my dad could walk into a bank and get a loan for his business. He often you know, had a legitimate business as, as kind of a front that my mother ran um, quite legitimately. They had a dry cleaning business, but then she, she became disabled when she had a stroke, a very unusual stroke at a young age. She was only 40. So she lived with disability and with reduced speech her whole mm-hmm. life, like 40 years of her life anyway, the majority of her life. And um, so we led a very interesting funny, tragic, comic existence because of that. And, um, and it was anchored around my father, who was a very dynamic and tragic figure. So I tell one story of him as the man who had to carry the secrets to his grave of his disabled children. And I didn't want to beat him up too much in the film. And I wanted to recognize him as a person of his time, because all of the adults of that generation, as you pointed out earlier, you know, like, who, what did we know and what didn't we? We didn't know anything. And we trusted our doctors and we trusted the medical establishment to tell us what was the thing to do. And my dad was, you know, working class and he was living with his mother when he had his family. They all lived together and it was very challenging for him. He had three children, two of whom were, you know, had complex needs and they were young my dad was only like 21, 22. Can you imagine? And with no supports from the community or from the med- doctors or the state, what are you going to do? So I I never faulted him in the film for... It was regrettable that he carried the shame that he had to not tell us the truth about Lewis, who you know also was sent there and lived and died there. Anyway, so I'm working on dramatic kind of comedy, dramatic scripts about his life that tells a different kind of, you know, the the other parts of our lives. Fantastic. Please keep us posted. Sure will. Before we say goodbye, can, Barry, can I just ask you about your other films? Now, there's a theme here, which is bringing truth to the world for them to see and understand, I believe. So you've got 1997, Not Yet Diagnosed, 2007, Toxic Trespass, 2019, Toxic Beauty, and and then now this one of 2022, Huronia's Forgotten Children Unloved. Can you just give us a quick... quick you spend your lifetime making films like okay put it in Cole's notes in five seconds <laughs> to some extent I can because and there's another film that I I may not have shared with you that it, that actually was the first time I was at hot dogs in 2003 there was a film I made about children who were caught up in child labor in Pakistan and we brought them over to Canada and, and um, they got to see and, and share with kids of their age group here and it was after 9-11, and it was also about, they were creating street theater about peace. So it was a beautiful story. But anyway, I think the theme, I just hate lies. <laughs> I think the theme is, I hate when the wool is being pulled over us. And I think the thing I love about documentary is, in spite of people's cynicism about news media, and we know there's tons of that right now with disinformation and all of that, There's something about documentary that keeps us collectively honest because usually what compels a documentary filmmaker to do anything is the need to share with the public a truth that they're not going to get from mainstream media. They're not going to get it from a magazine. Maybe a podcast these days might do that for you, but they're not going to get it from turning on the television or the radio and listening to to bits and pieces of news. So 
the form itself is very much driven by a reality that you may not know about. And so, and often there's a lot of cloak and dagger and lies and the wool pulled over our eyes about something. So that's what draws me to it. But the other theme is children. I actually yeah. sat back at one point and I went, wait a second, I'm really drawn to stories about kids. Because I think for me, children are, you know, they're the innocence in the story. It's a David and Goliath story and children are the innocence. And so it's not something consciously I set out to do. Yeah. You know what it is? Making documentaries is so hard and it takes so much energy and stick to that I really, really, really need to be angry to get mm. me over the finish line. And nothing's going to make me angrier than the depredations against children or the, the crossing the line with children. I didn't put that together, but absolutely, when, you, when we've talked full circle about it all, absolutely. Oh, Barry, how can people find you, connect with you, support you, follow your work? Websites or Instagram or Twitter or you name it. This is the call out. Oh, okay. Well, I am on Twitter. I don't know for how much longer because it's turned, <laughs> it's turned into a bit of a dumpster fire. Um, but I'm at Barry Doc, just B-A-R-R-I Doc, D-O-C okay. on Twitter. Okay. And I think that's the same handle on Instagram. And I'm also on Facebook. And LinkedIn as well. And those are, the, those are all the handles for now. Excellent. Yeah. This has been so enlightening. Thank you for doing this incredible work. And thank you for this specific film, Unloved, Heronia's Forgotten Children. Please come back, Barry, down the road. I'd be interested to see how you're doing on some of these ideas that are percolating right now. And if they, if they see the light of day, I'd really love to be able to talk to the world about them. So thank you for joining me. That would be delightful. And thank you for having me. This was lovely. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.